Thank you, Alicia. Well, I've got some good news for you. You want to hear it? It's 62 and a half days until Christmas. <laughs> You're not happy with that, Mitch? Uh, I'm not overly happy with that either, it must be said. Uh, 62 and a half days until Christmas. Now, some love Christmas and some hate Christmas. We could have a showing of hands, but uh, it doesn't really matter whether you put your hand up or down because it's coming anyway. Too bad. That's the way it goes. Um, but the one thing is true, regardless of all the trappings and trimmings around the celebration of Christmas, every Christian can embrace the meaning of Christmas, can't we? All of us. We can all understand and appreciate what Christmas is celebrating. Christmas is the celebration of Jesus being made incarnate. He put on flesh. He came and put on flesh and dwelt among us, as the book of John says. And so, between now and the 62 and a half days until Christmas, no doubt, you'll start to see uh, some classical things. Christmas trees will start to come up and the tinsel will start to be flowing and you'll find all sorts of things around and perhaps even a nativity scene. But as years go on, everyone, it seems, starts to put their own spin on nativity scenes. Just look at a couple that I found this week. Look at this one on the screen here. This is a nativity scene made completely out of meat. Brings incarnate to a whole new level, doesn't it? It's uh, very strange. What about this one? I don't know if you can recognise this one, but this is also allegedly meat. This is a nativity scene made out of a can of Spam, uh, in case you're wondering. Why would you bother? I mean, first of all, buying the thing. You have to go there and buy that stuff. Who would do that? And then you... That's probably all it's good for, frankly, carving it like that. Uh, what about this one? I wonder if you can recognise what's going on here. This is the hipster nativity. Uh, you've got uh, Mary and Joseph taking a selfie there and three men on segways delivering Amazon gifts to, uh, to the baby. That's hipster Jesus. And uh, I think it says 100% organic on the, uh, on the cow at the back there as well. 100% organic. Well, what about this final one? This is minimalist nativity scene. Uh, no faces, just blocks, just blocks of wood. Now, it's interesting as we look at this last one here, uh, this last uh, uh, nativity scene, I dare say that without the other three, you could have picked up what this was depicting without me telling you. Because the nativity scene actually has quite a lot of power, doesn't it? It's got quite a lot of resonance in our mind. We understand what it is. And so when we see just a bunch of blocks standing here, we can even understand that this is what it's trying to show us. The birth of Jesus in that place of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Well, today we come to another biblical nativity scene. You might be surprised to know that the Bible has many nativity scenes, many scenes of birth throughout its pages, of which the nativity scene of Jesus, as depicted in these pictures, is just one of many. Today we come to the nativity of Samson, the nativity of the last great judge in the book of Judges. And though there are still many chapters to go in the book of Judges, Samson is our last and final judge here. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at his life, a life that is full of ups and downs, a life that is full of sin and evil, as we'll see particularly next week. 
but a life that begins with God's grace and mercy. Today we're going to look at the nativity of Samson and see really that it is all an act of God. Remember, if you'd like to ask a question afterwards, slido.com is the place to do it. The hashtag is HBSP to get yourself a question to ask. I'm going to pray and then let's have a look at chapter 13 of the book of Judges together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you for the book of Judges and we ask please that you would show us your grace this morning uh, that we might go into this week ready to live by your grace and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've dived into the book of Judges together and we've uh, recognised that the book of Judges has a cycle. Now, before it goes up on the screen, I wonder if there's anybody that remembers uh, anything about the cycle of the book of Judges. People sin. The people sin. Right. Well done. Good. Off the mark. And what comes next? God is angered. God is angered. Very good. What comes next? Sorry, say again? They're judged. They're judged. Yep. They're handed over into the hands of their enemies. That's right. What happens next? The people cry out for help. Yes, Janice, that's right. The people cry out for help and then... God sends a judge. And then finally, there's a time of peace. Very good. Here it is up on the screen. This is the cycle that we've been looking at throughout the book of Judges. The people sin. God is angered, delivered to their enemies. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge. And then there is a time of peace. And throughout these four chapters of uh, of Judges, we see this uh, taking place once again. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them over into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Like so many of the other judges, uh, we see here that the people did evil. And once again, they're sold into the hand of their enemies. But this time, for the longest time in the book of Judges, 40 years. Such a long time to be oppressed by this nation of the Philistines. And what we find in these chapters is that Israel is basically finished crying out to God. They've given up. There is no crying out to God here in the cycle of the book of Judges. They're happy to live with the consequences of their sin. They've just got used to it. And rather than repent, or as we've seen through this series, they they haven't actually repented. They've just said, God, we need your help. We don't like the situation we're in, but now they don't even do that. They've decided to live with it. To give up the struggle. To give up the fight. And to give in to their oppressors. And sometimes we can live like this, can't we? Sometimes we can live in the same sort of situation. For a time, we fight our sin. And we don't like the consequences of our sins. So we cry out to God either just to get rid of the consequences like Israel or really in true repentance and we fight against that sin and yet sometimes like dripping water on a rock it wears us down little bit by little bit by little bit and though we see the consequences in our own lives or the lives of others because of our sin we just find it too hard to fight anymore It just seems to go round and round in circles, much like the book of Judges. And we give in. And we 
choose to live with our enemies, the enemies of sin and evil in our lives, rather than by the power of God removing these things by, uh, by praying to God and asking that they might go and repenting. And it's all too easy, isn't it, to give up the fight. But we're not to live this way. Unlike the Israelites here, we are not to give up the fight against sin in our own lives, that enemy that so deceives us. Instead, we're to wage war on our sin. We're to live the lifelong battle against sin and evil in our lives as hard as it is for each one of us. Because we know this, by the grace of God, we win the battle against sin and evil. Maybe not immediately. Maybe not every single time, but ultimately. And this is the good news of the Bible. We can can wage war against our sin because we win the long-term battle against sin and evil by the grace of God in Christ. So unlike the Israelites, keep fighting that battle. Whatever that besetting sin that is in your life and in mine that keeps going and keeps, uh, keeps on top of us day by day, Keep fighting. Do not give up. Do not choose to live with the enemy. But fight and wage that war against sin and evil in all our lives. The Israelites didn't do that, but nonetheless God was gracious to them, as he is so often to us. In Judges chapter 13, the people of God don't cry out for help. Nevertheless, God is gracious to them. And verses 2 to 7 introduce us to a man named Manoah and his unnamed wife, who we will call Mrs. Manoah. Manoah and Mrs. Manoah had no children. They were barren, we're told. And in many ways, their barrenness echoes the situation of the nation of Israel. They were barren and without hope. And God's people were spiritually barren and without hope. people of Israel, as we've already seen, did not cry out to God. And Manoah and Mrs. Manoah also did not cry out to God for help, like others in the Bible have done in the past. And yet God in his kindness appears to Mrs. Manoah and promises her a child. Now this, if we know our Bibles well, continues a biblical theme that goes right through the Bible, doesn't it? That oftentimes uh, the barrenness of a person can often lead to God's work, not just in that family, but the special provision of God to his people. Think of Abraham and Sarah. Think of Isaac and Rebekah. Think of Rachel and Jacob. Think, of course, of Hannah, who would come later. And Samuel, who would be born. And then, of course, the miraculous birth of Jesus to a virgin woman. All of these to women who couldn't or wouldn't have children, bring about a special provision into the people of God. Now, we can't draw any lessons for us today for those who are barren or struggling to have children, except to say this, God knows the plight of the childless and God delights to bring blessing to those who do not have children or cannot have children. He's got a track record in doing so. Now, this does not always mean that God will will give children to those who are barren. But it does mean that God knows, God understands 
And he sees your plight if you are in this particular boat at this particular time. Well, God here says to Mrs. Manoah, you're going to have a son. He will save the nation from the hand of the Philistines. He will be a Nazarite and will be set apart for God. Now, what's a Nazarite? Well, it's not to be confused with someone from Nazareth. That's uh, what we see Jesus being called in, uh, in uh, Matthew's Gospel. A Nazarite, instead, is someone set apart for God's service. We see this in Numbers chapter 6, where they're set aside for a purpose and their hair is not to be cut and they're not to drink alcohol or not to touch dead bodies. They're to be set apart for God. And Mrs. Manoah is told, you're going to have the same rules for this child in utero. Do not touch any alcohol. Do not touch any dead bodies. Do not allow his hair to be cut. Here there is a promise to Mrs. Manoah for a saviour that nobody asked for. I wonder if you've ever received a gift that you never asked for. As Christmas is coming, 62 and a half days away, uh, you're starting probably to lay a few hints around the place, are you? Hinting to your family and friends about what it is that you really want for Christmas. That's how it works. Just lay a few little eggs around the place, hinting as to what you want. And uh, maybe it will be there under the tree on Christmas Day. But imagine those gifts that you receive that are no hints, no reason, just complete and sheer and utter grace. Here is what Israel is about to receive in the birth of this man, Samson. And here is what we receive in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, though he was the expected Messiah, came into the world and nobody accepted him. As John chapter 1 tells us, he came into his world, came into this world and his own did not receive him. Jesus is the saviour that no one wanted as well. And so we see here the parallels between the nativity of Samson and the nativity of Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin, again, by sheer grace of God. Jesus is the child that no one was asking for, so was Samson. And Samson came to defeat the Philistines. And Jesus came to defeat sin and death and the devil. And so having received this message, Mrs. Manoah heads home to tell her husband all that's happened. But he's not happy with this. I don't know if you noticed as as Alicia read it for us. He wants to know for himself. I know that you've heard this message, Mrs. Manoa, but I want to know for myself. I won't accept your word for it. I want to know what we should do, how we should go about it, and what the instructions are. So look at verse 8 of chapter 13. Then Manoa prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us, teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. It's an interesting prayer, isn't it? See, God doesn't need to answer this prayer in the positive. He doesn't need to say yes to this request. He's already told this family all they need to know. Sure, he wasn't there at the time, but he's already told them everything they need to know. But like so many of the other judges in the book of Judges, Manoah needs just a little bit more proof. I need to see this with my own eyes. And God graciously grants this request. 
It's interesting, isn't it? That as we reflect on our own lives, we're often like Manoah. God has been so gracious to each one of us, hasn't he? He's given us Jesus. He's given us the resurrection of Christ. He's given us his word that we might read of these amazing things and understand them. He's given us the gift of faith to trust God in all of these things. And God would be justified to leave it at that. They are amazing gifts that he's given to us. Amazing gifts. And yet, God continues to give gifts to his people. He gives us the gift of prayer. We can go to God and ask him. We can go to God and speak to him. And we can go to God and not only speak to him, but rely on him to answer our prayers, yes or no, or wait until later. But though God is not obliged to do any of this, he listens to our prayers, even when they're feeble and weird prayers and immature prayers and silly prayers and strange prayers. And you can imagine his face if he were to have one. When we make our immature and silly prayers to him, can't you? And yet, God listens to our prayers. God listens to our prayers and often answers them for us in the affirmative. Manoah's prayer here is silly. Everything you need to know, Manoah, I've already told your wife, just listen to her and everything will be fine. But no. Nevertheless, God is kind to listen to Manoah's prayer. And he's kind to listen to our immature, silly, weird prayers as well. So this ought to make us remember and pray all the more, knowing that God will listen to us regardless of what we ask and he will always answer in a a way that's best for his glory and then for our good. And so we should ask and ask and ask all the more. God is kind to grant that this messenger, this angel, come back again. And look at what takes place in verse 11. Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Okay, what's he going to tell him? Verse 12. And Manoah Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be this child's manner of life and what is to be his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink strong wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I have commanded her, let her observe. Here's the message the angel has. I've already told her everything. Let me just repeat it to you and that's it. Nothing more. Nothing more. Now, there is a little bit of a brotherhood to be kept here among the men of our church. Let's just say that, blokes. All right, I've got your back uh, and I always will. But... We're pretty slow. Okay, we're pretty slow. Uh, we're slow on the uptake. I don't know if you've noticed, blokes, but uh, generally, when our wives are, are blessed enough to have the children in the family, they're usually about an emotional year ahead of us uh, as blokes. It takes us a little while to catch up to where they are in the parenting sphere of things. I don't know if that's just me. Uh, maybe there's a few brothers that want to come with me on that trail. I'm not sure. But it feels like that. And here, here's what it's like for Manoah as well. He's a bit behind the game, isn't he? Just listen to your wife, champion, and everything will be fine. But no, he doesn't do it. And he gets the same response from the angel in any case. Or Manoah says, 
it, it's very important that you stay for some food. It's a natural response, isn't it? Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, verse 16, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Here we find ourselves in a confusing old situation. Manoah is confused about who he's talking to or what's exactly going on or what he's supposed to do. And so in verse 17, he asks for a bit more information. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now, this is a very strange part of the Bible, and you might like to ask a question about it later. I'm not sure I'll be able to answer it. No one seems to quite know what the angel is saying when he says, seeing it is wonderful. Maybe he's calling his own name wonderful, if that's the name of the angel. Maybe he's just being deliberately obscure, or not telling Manoah what his name is at all. Or maybe he's trying to simply say that he's a messenger of the Lord, and that the Lord is wonderful. Either way, he is not to be worshipped. God is to be worshipped for what he is about to do in this family. And so, verse 19, Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. Finally, Manoah knows that this is a message from God. More than that, he knows that he has been in the presence of God. Verse 22 tells us, he says, We will surely die, for we have seen God. It's another one of those confusing places in the book of Judges where the, the angel and the Lord are somehow conflated together and almost interchangeable, and it's confusing to us. But nevertheless, Manoah knows I've seen God and now I must die. And he's logical, but he's not theological. Because Mrs. Manoah goes on to say in verse 23, hang on a second, if we've seen God and now we should die, yes, I know that makes sense, but why would God have appeared to us and told us all this stuff and offered us this child that will come if he's just going to knock us off anyway? See, once again, she's right. She's right. Though the presence of God is serious, the presence of God is for the benefit of Manoah, Manoah's wife, and the people of God. It's the same sort of response that the disciples of Jesus have, isn't it? When they go out on the boat and they realise that as Jesus stops the storm, that he is really God and they're more terrified by him being God than they are by the big storm. It's amazing for us to recognise on a day like today, isn't it, that if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God, the presence of God, living in you and with you. And for us, there is a right fear and respect and awe to the presence of God in our lives. But rightly, we understand that this is not a fear of our life, but a rightful fear and respect for the presence of God within us. 
See, like Manoah and his wife, the Spirit of God within us seeks to work for God's benefit in our lives. God is working in your life and my life, if you know Jesus, by the Spirit of God. And graciously, he's working in your life. And he doesn't work at a distance, he works in your life by his Spirit. And that's great news for all of us. Something we should not take for granted. For though God is in us and with us, we are not consumed. And God gives his spirit in order that he might work through us. And it's great news for us. The power of God in the spirit of Christ at work in each of us who know and love the Lord Jesus. And so we ought not to quench the spirit or grieve the spirit as the New Testament teaches us, but instead have a rightful fear of God that actually the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ sent his spirit to work in and through us, that he might work with us and work wonders amongst us. We must take care not to be overly familiar, but to remember, like Mrs. Manoah, that God's presence is here to be working with us at this time. Well, finally, we get to the actual nativity, verses 24 and 25, right at the end. Look at what it says there. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. We'll see over time that though Samson is a product of his upbringing, he was always God's man. We'll see next week that he was the one to save and deliver his people, even though he is the worst and most sinful of all of the judges. And we can't help as New Testament Christians to look forward to the New Testament and see that what Samson was imperfectly and temporarily, Jesus was perfectly and permanently. Jesus was the permanent saviour of his people raised up from birth and even before for the goodness of his people and the salvation of many souls. And so it leaves us with a a couple of reflections as we pause this story halfway through at the end of the nativity of Samson. First of all, we see in this passage God's work. It is no surprise here that the mother of Samson has no name. It's no surprise that the angel of God has no name. For these details will distract us from what is the key theme in this passage, which is the grace and mercy of God. The grace and mercy of God that gives a saviour that nobody was asking for. And we see in this passage that God raises his saviour in a different way to any of the times in the book of Judges previously. In the book of Judges, many times God takes someone and makes them a judge. But here, Samson is a judge even before he's born. And thirdly, this passage reminds us that it is often out of exceptional hardship that God does his exceptional work. This couple, they were barren. The nation of Israel, they were 40 years under the strong hand of the Philistines exceptional hardship and yet God often works his grace and mercy out of exceptional hardship this is so often how God works when we reach rock bottom then 
then God's grace is so easily seen in our lives. It's funny, isn't it? We protect ourselves so much against rock bottom. And I can understand that natural tendency we all have. But it's at rock bottom that God often does his greatest work. It's often that God's grace is most clearly seen when there is no other help available. For many Christians, perhaps it's been the case in your life, when there's hardship, we move to abandon God and ask, where is he? But could it be that the opposite is what we ought to do in exceptional hardship? Then instead of running away from him, we ought to run towards him. For it's in the time of exceptional hardship that God's exceptional grace is seen most clearly. This is true of all of our lives, isn't it? God's grace has been lavished on us in the person of Jesus. The saviour that no one wanted has come into our lives, saved us and delivered to us his powerful Holy Spirit so that we might live for him. From beginning to end, your salvation, your life and everything you have, like the nation of Israel, is nothing but the grace of God. Let's live in God's grace, praising him for all that he's given to us. I'm going to take a moment or two to think and ask, you can ask some questions and uh, I'm going to come back and answer them in about two minutes time. So let's take a break to do that now. Thank you for your questions. There's a couple that have come through. Keep asking if you like to, but uh, a couple that are here. Um, the, the verse about the angel and the wonderful, uh, verse 18, and, what, and the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So someone's asked here, uh, is, that the same, is this the same as Jesus when he's called wonderful, wonderful counsellor, prince of peace? Um, that's a great question. I don't know for sure. I mean, it's, it's really hard to work out what's happening here because the angel um, wants to deflect. The angel doesn't want the attention to himself. So that's, that's partly what's going on here. Um, 
And he says, why do you ask my name? In other words, I'm not going to tell you. So I, th- I don't think he's telling him his name. And I don't know that he's telling... I don't know that he's even saying anything about God's name. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure what's happening in this particular situation, if I'm honest. And, and many of the books that I've read aren't quite sure either what's going on. But I think maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is that it's not clear. Um, because the angel's really trying to be uh, not clear at all because he's trying to deflect away from any sort of clarity. Otherwise, Manoah might bow down and worship the angel. And so that's the. I think that's the whole point. So whether or not it's referring to uh, the wonderful council of Prince of Peace stuff, I'm not sure that it is. I think that's probably too clear and too obvious a connection. Um, and I don't think the angel's wanting to do that. I think the angel's wanting to deflect. That would be my answer to that, I think. Uh, because God is to be honoured rather than rather than the messenger of God to be honoured in this case. Uh, next question. Is 40 years a type of biblical standard uh, or litmus uh, for exceptional hardship ex- uh, example wandering in the desert 40 years? Uh, definitely. That's a significant number. Um, the only thing that would uh, suggest otherwise throughout the book of Judges is that uh, there are other numbers given as well. And they're obviously uh, not considered any sort of symbol uh, or symbolic number in that case. So I, I think this is 40 years, but nonetheless, that's a long time. So um, uh, I think that's that's the point here. I don't know that there's um, uh, anything more to make of, of that in this particular case, I don't think. Uh, is there any significance for the name of Samson from Ella? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I'll check. Um, I'll check, get back to you. That's a good question. I'll answer it tonight. Accurately. (laughs) There we go. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your great grace to us in the Lord Jesus. Uh, We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that, uh, uh, as we've heard in our Bible studies this week, that uh, uh, before the world was made, you have chosen us to believe and to belong to you. And these acts of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ are are, are pure kindness from you to us. And we ask, please, that uh, you might help us never to lose sight of the fact that all we have is by grace, and yet you still allow us to pray to you and to talk to you and to ask you things, and you uh, 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 allow us to be heard by you, and that you also give us the gift of your Spirit so that we might... uh, work uh, in this world for your glory and by your grace as well and we thank you for all of these great gifts every single thing comes from you we ask please that you might help us again clearly today to see your grace in our own lives to be thankful for it and to revel in it and uh, that we might go into this world ready to serve you for the lord jesus christ's sake we ask amen let's sing our final song please stand and we're going to sing uh, our final song for this morning